Okay, waiting on the Lord part three. We've already talked about what it looks like to wait on the Lord. There's 10 elements of biblical waiting, right? God's word is always involved. There's trust, there's action, there's faith. Um, There's God's presence involved as the central focus. There's contentment, there's patience, there's hopeful expectation. Um, There's salvation involved and there's a hierarchy of priorities involved when it comes to waiting on the Lord. And so I've titled this waiting for nothing. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, 11, you're going to see that there are people who essentially waited for nothing that they saw this side of heaven. There are things they waited for, spent their whole life waiting for, that this life, in this temporary life, they never saw it. And they saw it in the afterlife, or they'll see it, you know, when, when new creation comes and Jesus comes and reigns. And, and that's part of the fulfillment of the promises given to them. But we don't ever consider the fact that a lot of us might just be waiting for something we won't actually see or receive in this life. And we go, what I want, what I desire, my passions, my ambitions, the prayers of my heart. Like we we almost, there's this level of certainty, like I'm going to see that in my life. And what you need to understand is biblically, waiting on the Lord is not just for a moment. It's not just for a period of time. It's for a lifetime, okay? So I want to open up with a question for you guys to really consider. Are you okay? Like really ask yourself, am I okay? if I don't get what I'm waiting for in this lifetime on the earth, or if I even see it, you know, at all, because maybe it's gonna happen beyond my life and after I'm gone and my children will take it up and and end up answering the prayers of my heart that I had before the Lord. Um, Are you okay if what you're waiting for right now actually doesn't happen this side of eternity and in this life. Whether it's physical healing, whether it's a good report from the doctor, whether it's complete freedom from, um, I I don't know, whatever sinful issue and habit and struggle and addiction, same-sex attraction, whatever it is, overcoming a certain uh, habit and addiction, sexual immorality, freedom from insecurity, fear of man. These things are available to us in Christ. We're free from the penalty of sin. Uh, We're free from um, the, the power of Uh, of sin over us, right? We're free from what once held us captive. Sin, death, and the devil, we're free from that. But, But what if the things you're waiting for, such as I'm never going to fill in the blank, or this is, I'm never gonna think like this anymore, or this specific habit is gonna be completely removed from my life. What if the sanctification process that is actually gonna end up working out in your life isn't gonna look the way you thought? What if the loving spouse you're waiting for that really loves Christ and fears the Lord and puts God at the center of their life, what if, What if they're actually not coming the way you thought? What if the successful company to sustain your family and financial stability or your kids coming back to Christ, what if you're not gonna see that in this life but it's gonna happen after you're gone? And the vision that God gave you for your family and your children and their children and and the breakthrough that you're believing for your wife and your family members to be saved, what if those things aren't actually gonna be things that you see in this life and it's gonna happen when you're gone or at, at the least when Jesus comes back, we're gonna see these things in full. What if essentially what I'm asking is, are you okay if the things you're believing God to do don't end up happening in this life? And this is not to minimize faith and say we shouldn't have this element of, of confidence and assurance. I'm, I'm just asking you, have you placed all your hope and all your trust and all your confidence and joy in what you're waiting for in this temporary life? Or if you know God didn't do it the way you wanted, the timing you wanted, or even at all while you're alive, would you be okay with that? So if you expect to definitely receive everything you expect of God in this life, you're set up for disappointment. And you go, but I have faith. Faith, again, we've already talked about this. Faith is not just deciding God is going to do something and attaching his name to it. 
Faith is not making up something, drawing up the blueprint yourself, and then going, God, can you co-sign this? I'm calling it faith. Yet a lot of Christians give up too quickly, and they miss out on the fullest life God has for them because they simply don't know how to wait. And there are three categories. As you're waiting on God, the different desires and beliefs and visions and dreams of your heart, the things that you are believing and waiting for God to do, you can almost place those things under three categories, right? There's, and, and coincidentally, these relate to like the answers God gives in prayer. They say that God always gives one of three answers. Yes, no, or not yet. And we need to learn how to, hey, what I'm waiting for, which category does that most likely fit under? Yes, no, not yet, or even like, um, not in this life. That might be a fourth category. And I'm not saying you and I can definitively fit things under categories, but to at least live life with those categories and understand that whatever I'm waiting for is going to fall under either yes, it's going to happen, or not yet as fast as I, I want it to, or no, not at all, or when I'm gone, it's going to happen in the lives of my family or those around me or what I was believing and praying for my kids to do. So um, the question is not, when am I going to receive what I'm waiting for? Whatever you're waiting on the Lord for, whether it's family related, whether it's financially related, whether it's mental state and, and emotion, emotional capacity and you're just ready to move on and, and relational, whatever you're waiting for, the question is not, when will I receive what I'm waiting for? Uh, when I'm gone, at all, not yet, later when I'm 50 years old and I'm five, I've stopped waiting for it and God goes, now you're ready. The question is not that. The question is, what do we need to do regardless of when and if what I'm waiting for actually comes to pass? And one of the big things that stood out to me as I was studying for this, Hebrews chapter 11 is our main text this morning. One of the big things that stood out to me is um, a lot of us, let me use my kids as an example because they're just a fantastic sermon illustration every time. Whenever I tell them to wait for something, five minutes pass and my son's already complaining about how well he's waiting. So he's focused on how good he's waiting or how long he's waiting. In other words, he's focused on his waiting process. And my encouragement to you is not to focus on your waiting process and go, God, look how well I'm waiting. Look how long I'm waiting. How long is this going to take place? Take your eyes off the waiting process and just put your eyes onto God. Because what happens is the process of waiting can actually distract you from God. That's what happens. And then we sit and we get complaining and, dis and distracted and, and bothered and annoyed and confused and frustrated and even bitter because we're focused on our own waiting, our ability, the time we're, that, that it's taking. And my, and my encouragement to you is don't spend your life focusing on the waiting process itself. There are elements to that that we should focus on, mainly God though. He should be the focus. And so whatever the Lord has to say to you this morning, I pray it blesses you. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8. That's primarily where we're going to park it. Um, I'm going to give you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven biblical characters, listen to me, who believed for the right things who wanted the right things. Their faith was in God's promises. The only problem is that what they believed for wasn't gonna happen in this life. It would happen after, in the afterlife, you might say, or beyond their life, once they're gone, or in the new creation. For instance, Hebrews chapter 11, verse eight. You need to understand, um, you need to understand that waiting is a process. Waiting is a process. 
And sometimes it involves not getting what you're waiting for this side of heaven, okay? Um, <laughs> can someone get Jessica out of timeout? Sorry, sis, I was trying to click to see your channel, <laughs> but I ended up pressing something else. I got it. Uh, should be able to do it. Let's take her off timeout. It says she's on timeout, or not on timeout. Timeout's such a weird, I'm gonna put you on timeout. Put user in timeout, hide user. She doesn't look like she's on timeout. Should, should be good. Should be good. Uh, but hopefully you guys figure it out. Hopefully it's, it's a, Christian's first day on the job. I love you, Christian. Uh, hopefully someone like Ken or, or uh, John comes along and helps out. But I, as far as I'm concerned, Jessica's not on timeout. I, I looked and she's good. Jessica, can you let us know you're good in the chat? We'd hate for you to be <laughs> unnecessarily be on timeout. Okay, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Whether or not you're on timeout, either way you can listen. So God will work it out. You're going to see Abraham and Sarah in verse 8 through 12. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. Okay, we're always, uh, this is such an encouragement to our faith as we're waiting. Okay, the, this finds itself in the context of the Hebrews letter to the Hebrews, um, whoever the author is. The context of chapter 11 is to motivate and encourage uh, continuing to press on towards the goal. Continuing to look to Jesus and not go to something else. And he's going to, the author is going to use different biblical characters who have done the same. They were tempted to go back where life was easier, where it was quote-unquote better, where they were more comfortable, and instead they pressed on and they waited for something that they wouldn't even see in this lifetime. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. I'm going to give you seven characters. Then what we're going to do is I'm going to give you three very practical applications for your life when it comes to waiting on the Lord essentially for nothing. That's why I titled it Waiting for Nothing. Uh, because sometimes we, we are waiting for nothing. What you're expecting, what you're believing for, what you're waiting for God to do is actually nothing. It's not going to happen. Or maybe not yet in this life, it's going to happen beyond this life. And so um, don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged. Uh, like really, is that most of what the believer is waiting for is going to come when we die anyway. Resurrection, glorification, reigning with Christ, the new earth new creation, the enemies of God gone, no more sin, right? Those are the main things we're waiting for. Uh, uh, a world where there's no more tears, no more sadness, no more pain, no more death. Like that's ultimate. Christ reigns, he's in charge. So no matter what we're waiting, like we're not gonna see that until we all pass. Or Jesus comes back and it's like, boom, let's get to, let's get to work. Hebrews 11 verse eight, it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed, uh, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Uh, Abraham, in Genesis 12, is promised land, descendants, a nation, blessing to the surrounding nations and the whole world. Um, and so Abraham, he's called out to go to a place that he would receive as an inheritance. You know what, what God promised Abraham was that he would have descendants that would have the land, but he wouldn't actually get to see the full scope of that. He would get to see Isaac. He would get to see, I believe, Jacob and Esau. Um, he went out not knowing where he was going. So God calls him out of the land of the Chaldeans and uh, to leave his family, to leave everything he knows, to leave his comfort, to leave his old life. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise. So there's that land language. The land is being emphasized here as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Um, so yeah, he, he did actually live with his grandchildren. He was alive to see them. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations. 
whose designer and builder is God. Now by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, that being Abram, and him as good as dead, uh, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Okay, so Abraham and Sarah, they did receive part of the promise. That was Isaac. God did give them the promised son. Now, what God would do down the line is give them the inheritance of the promised land that Abraham gets to survey and look at and get to temporarily enjoy, but he wouldn't inherit it in his lifetime. That was for his future descendants. Abraham didn't see the nation form out of, you know, Isaac, his son. Abraham didn't see uh, all that would come and the blessing that Israel was supposed to be to the nations and, and the way that God would dwell among his people in the tabernacle and the law given and the priesthood. Abraham didn't get to see the fullness of the promise. What he did get to see is part of the promise. So he gets to see his son and his grandchildren. That's great. He gets to survey the land with his eyes, but not live in it and inherit it. That's different. So he doesn't get to actually experience the promise of the land and the, the nation that comes from him, like actually see the nation. He gets to see his son and his grandchildren. He doesn't get to see the blessing they're supposed to be to the surrounding world. Instead, what he gets to do is he gets to leave his, his old life and he gets to go look at a piece of land that God's like, hey, you know, in about, just so you know, you're... Your descendants are going to be enslaved for about 400 years with Egypt. I want to bring judgment on them because I'm waiting for the nations in the promised land to, for their sin to reach the full. Then I'm going to bring judgment upon them through the nation of Israel. So I'm waiting for a few things. God is <laughs> strategically waiting for a few things to fall in place and to happen before it's time to send Israel, the nation, into the promised land. Abraham's not going to be able to see that. You know what he's looking forward to? Specifically, the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And the city there is linked to the land. It's linked to the inheritance, the promise. Uh, and then what you're going to see is that verse 13 is kind of tragic. At least from our perspective, it's like, ah, oh, bummer. <laughs> that sucks. Verse 13, it says, these all died in faith. Abram, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, uh, everyone else who's been named. I believe Noah. Enoch, Abel, uh, and those are the main characters that have been named so far. So the author of Hebrews is going, look, they all died in faith. Look at the next statement. Not having received the things promised. Did God go back on his word? No. Did God lie? No. Did God give a promise that he would fulfill in his timing after they pass on? Yes. He gave them a promise they would not see fully. Do you understand? This is how God works. When God gives a promise, there's this, there's this, the already and the not yet is what it's technically called in the theological world, the already and the not yet. We already see evidence of what he's promised, but not the full scope of it until he decides it's time. Same with Abram, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Enoch. They all had this anticipation of what we see in Genesis 3, the promised seed crushing the head of the serpent and the promised world that God would bring through that, that Messiah, that anointed one, right? That includes land, that includes inheritance, that includes reigning, that includes a, a, a lasting city that can't be stopped. They're all looking forward to it. Only problem is they're not going to see it. So God promises what he's going to fulfill after their life. Why would God give a promise to people for something they're not even going to see fully in their lifetime? Well... Therein lies the whole gap 
the author's trying to kind of speak on that's called faith. It's all about faith. There's evidence of it, but not the full revelation of it. Right? So we see evidence of the new self, the new life. I'm a, crea- a new creation in Christ. I see evidence of new desires. I see evidence that I have eternal life, that God's presence is in my life, that, that he's doing something, that he's active, that he's real, he's alive. But I don't see the full scope of that. There's evidence that what Jesus said he's going to do, he's going to do. I don't see the full evidence of that. They all died in faith, not having received the full promise. That's a bummer. They spend their whole life looking forward to something they're not even going to see in full. They spend their whole life waiting on God to do something. He promised, but they're only going to see part of that promise. And God doesn't necessarily disclose that to every biblical character. Having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth, right? For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. Like, do you understand how much of this has to do with homeland, where we really belong, the promised land, eternity with God in the new creation, in the new earth, right? The the heavenly Jerusalem and the new city that's coming. That's what's being expected here by those who walked in faith. They're expecting something beyond this life. They're not settling for this life. Do Do you get it? Faith doesn't settle in and go, this is enough. Faith says, "Mm, God's enough, but I know there's more and I'm going to move towards it. So waiting on God, as we're going to see in future episodes, is actually activity and movement. It's not lazy. It's not sitting back and going, God will. It's God will, but I also want to play a part in that and actually like do my part in the body in anticipation of what he's promised. So they acknowledged the promises of God. They saw them. They greeted them. They did not receive them. That's a bummer, man. Your whole life, you're waiting for something and you have an idea of what that'll look like and then you die and you don't see it because God always knew you would see a portion of that, a part of it, not the full scope of it. You, however, as a biblical character, let's just step in their shoes. I'm not saying all the biblical characters did this, but but some of them, you know, assigned these self-made elements to the promises of God where they go, I know you said this, God, it's going to look like this. It's going to happen this time. It's going to include this. And God goes, you just, you just added those things. I gave you the general promise. You added your own special conditions. I never gave you. So as it is, uh, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. You know, whether it's Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're sojourners. They're wanderers, right? They're people who would walk, actually wander the earth knowing this is not home. Look at verse 16. As it is, they actually desire a better country. They desire a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's prepared for them a city. He's prepared for them a city. Do you see how many times um, the city... The land of promise, the inheritance, um, the place he was going, um, the homeland, better country, heavenly country. You see this language that's being used over and over and over? It's to say that there's a better place we're headed. And if we settle into this life and think this is it, we're going to be real disappointed. Because there's something far better coming. Way better. And waiting on God, at least Noah, Enoch, Abel, Sarah, Jacob, Isaac, you know, they're seeking for 
They're longing for, waiting for a heavenly country, the heavenly city. Whether they had the language for it, whether they had the, they had the knowledge we do about it, the point is they longed for something better that God promised he would do. They didn't, they didn't make it up. God said, I will, through the promise, seed of the woman, there's steps along the way. God progressively reveals his plan to humanity. <clears throat> All these biblical characters begin to long for the things of God. The heavenly city. This is not it. There's a better country coming. There's an inheritance, a land of promise, homeland. But they actually didn't receive it in their lifetime. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is what Jesus says in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. The point is he's making preparation for us to actually follow in his footsteps and enter into the kingdom of God. We get to be a part of this city. We get to be citizens and beyond citizens, we get to be sons of the king, daughters of the king. It's one thing to be a citizen of the kingdom and be like, I was born here. It's another thing to be like, yeah, the king actually adopted me and made me his own. I'm in his household. I have his name. I carry, I'm actually, I get to like enjoy his inheritance and I'm a citizen of the kingdom. There's a city beyond this life, this world that we're longing for or should be waiting for. Whether or not you will see that in this temporary life or in your lifetime is not the question. The question is, how do we wait for what God has promised? And a second question is, am I potentially waiting for something God never gave me permission or reason to wait for? Right? Because it's one thing to be like, God promised this in his word. I can believe for that, right? It's another thing to be like, ah, Scripture doesn't explicitly tell me that I for sure have a loving spouse coming my way in, in my lifetime. Scripture doesn't explicitly tell me that I should expect a house to live in, where I actually have my own place and land and property. Scripture doesn't tell me that I should absolutely expect this level of financial stability and this much savings in the bank. Scripture doesn't give you that, those explicit statements that, be, that we begin to like believe for. So what do we do with those? When God hasn't promised that necessarily for me, but I believe it and I'm confident and maybe I've received some, some confirming words along the way and God has uh, seemed to validate that. How, how do I know that's worth waiting for? Probably not the conversation for today, but just wetting your appetite. I want you to think about that, okay? So guess what? Abram, Sarah believed for something they wouldn't see in their lifetime. Noah, Enoch, Abel, uh, Jacob, uh, even Seth, believing for a heavenly city they would not see in their lifetime. Go to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. Okay? And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Okay? Of whom it was said. Now, this is God speaking about the promised son being Isaac. Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. God promised that. That assumes Isaac has to have kids. Therefore, if Isaac dies before he has kids, God lied. God went back on his word. The promise wasn't what it was. And so Abraham's faith is being tested. Hey, come and offer up your son. Uh, my legacy is wrapped up in this boy. You said Isaac. So what Abraham does is he responds to the promise of God, right? Uh, Romans chapter 4 and 5 will tell us that in hope he believed against hope. He didn't believe for something that wasn't going to happen. 
but he was actually believing against the grains of what his life told him to believe. His, his, his life and his world gave him reason to not believe that a son was coming, but God gave him a greater reason to actually believe that he would have one. And now Abraham is actually facing the reality that he's about to offer up his son. Now what Hebrews tells us is that Abraham believed God could raise him from the dead. Not that he would, not that he for sure was gonna do it this way, just that God could. Verse 19, Abraham actually considered God was able even to raise him from the dead. Figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive Isaac back from the dead, right? He expected to go kill his son. He ends up coming back down the mountain with his son because God provided a ram. So what we see is there's within this little narrative where, you know, the author of Hebrews stops to talk about Abraham was about to sacrifice his son. He didn't have to. Hooray. Resurrection points to Jesus. There's an anticipation of resurrection from the dead that I believe Abraham is looking or having. He, he has this anticipation that God can raise from the dead. Otherwise, there wouldn't be this whole, uh, with the patriarchs at least, wanting to be buried in specific locations. Who cares? Who cares where you're buried? Well, they actually believed it mattered so much because of the fact that the coming back from the dead was such a guarantee um, that it mattered where you'd come up from the dead and such. I'm sure Silver Mouse would speak into that a little more. Go find Silver Mouse on our Discord server. The, the point is, okay, that Abram believed Isaac could be raised from the dead. There's, within that, it's this general anticipation for resurrection life. Now, Abraham would not see that. He received Isaac back as a kind of resurrection, but not the full one he longed for. Within all the biblical characters is this anticipation of no more death. The problem is they all saw death. So what they believed for, God, we're not going to die. God, we're going to see life beyond the grave. They actually died in waiting for that promise because the resurrection in Christ is going to happen in the timing and the way that God has prescribed best for humanity. And so Abraham is believing for what God has promised, but the resurrection life, actually coming back from the dead never to die again, that is something Abraham wouldn't see in his lifetime, but you know, beyond his passing. Um, number four, we're gonna see Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So what you're going to see right here in verse 21 is that Jacob, he blesses the sons of Joseph, and then he ends up dying. Bummer. So what he declares about the two grandchildren, he doesn't actually end up seeing. Jacob didn't get to see the future blessings he invoked on Joseph's kids, which he you know, claimed as his own. He didn't see that. Jacob ends up spending his life, again, like Abraham, like his father Isaac, like those who walk in faith prior to us, believing for what God didn't fulfill in perfection and entirety, right? You're going to see the same thing in verse, um, uh, 22, okay? But this is Joseph. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus, now, how did Joseph know about the Exodus when Israel hadn't even technically been, uh, you know, enslaved by Egypt yet? Well, if you go back to Scripture, Genesis tells us that God told Abraham, hey, 
your descendants, they're going to end up in slavery to Egypt. Well, I believe he says Egypt. I don't remember. But he does say for 400 years. After that, I'll rescue them. Okay? So every time uh, Hebrews mentions a character waiting, and then they don't see what they waited for, at least in its entirety, all of those people, they're waiting for what God promised. They're waiting for what God said. They did not decide God said this. They did not make up an idea and go, God is going to do this. It's always a response to what God first gives and says and initiates. Joseph is responding to what Abraham probably passed down about the whole Israel's or the nation that comes from them are going to be in, in, in slavery to Egypt. And look at what Joseph does. He gives directions concerning his bones. What does that mean? Hey, when I die and I'm buried and then 400, four centuries have passed, take my bones, bring it into the land that God's going to bring you into. What faith? Joseph didn't see the land. Joseph didn't see the Exodus. Joseph didn't even see the nation of Israel become what it is 400 years later. Joseph didn't see them enslaved to Egypt. There's such faith and anticipation that he can be in his dying breath, say, don't forget to take my bones. It's a big deal. He didn't even get to see any of that. So Joseph, just like Jacob, just like Isaac, just like Abraham, what do they spend their life doing? Waiting for something they wouldn't see completely. David is the last character, okay? David is the last character. Let me take you to 2 Samuel 7. David, and there's probably a lot more examples I could have used, but David, um, as the king, this is, what he, this is what happens. When the king lived, this is uh, 2 Samuel 7. I hope it's changing on the screen. I don't know if it is. 2 Samuel 7 verse 1, it says, When the king lived in his house, and the Lord gave him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet. So this is David looking at Nathan, his prophet, or God's prophet, who helps him. And he says, hey, I dwell in a house of cedar. Like, I have a great house. But the ark of God, like God, he dwells in a tent. Essentially, that's not right, David's saying. Something needs to be done about that. Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. Now, we've talked about this in uh, our prophecy series. I don't want to get into it. But the same night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and God says something different. God comes to Nathan the prophet and he goes, go tell David, my servant, this is what the Lord says. Would you build me a house to dwell in, David? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. And the Lord says, I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Did I ever say, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Did I ever complain about not having a place to dwell? Therefore, thus go say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the pasture. This is not about, watch this. This is not about what David can do for God. God flips the script and he, this becomes about what God can do for David and what he has done for David. We often get so wrapped up in, I, I can do this for you, God. Let me do this for you. And God's like, I don't need anything from you. Like I technically am self-sufficient. God is self-reliant. He needs nothing outside of himself. That's one of his characteristics. But God has chosen to work with humanity. 
And so what God does through us, through the church, even what he allows in the unbelieving world, it all comes together in his perfect plan and everyone plays a role in that, in that kind of way. God does not need us. It's more about what God does for us that emphasizes his glory, that magnifies his grace and his love for us, that humbles us to realize, I can't do anything God needs, but I'd love to do something in response to God's love for me because I love him. And so, you know, he said, I took you from the pasture that you should be the prince over my people Israel. I've been with you, David, wherever you went. I've cut off your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, like David's house, because Jesus is gonna come from the house of David and be the king of kings. David's house is gonna be a very powerful name. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. This is God saying, here's what I'll do, because David's all about, God doesn't have a house. Here's what we need to do. I have a plan. And God goes, whoa, I never asked for a house. It's a nice thought. Let me tell you what I'm doing for you. I'm gonna appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And God goes, I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord says, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, the Lord says, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, God is talking about, there's a dual thing going on. When he says, I will establish your sons, your offspring's kingdom, and I will, he will build a house for my name. First time that happens is Solomon, okay? Solomon's gonna build a physical temple for the name of God. What's gonna happen later down the line is that Jesus, the greater David, and the greater Solomon is going to build a spiritual house, that being the church that being the people of God, right? So Solomon didn't really fulfill this promise in its entirety. It was more about Jesus who would build the spiritual house of God being the family, the household, the church. Solomon gets to build a temple, that's great. That gets destroyed when Babylon comes in and wipes it out. It's also, you know, after it gets erected again, it's gonna be destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So it's not so much just about the physical temple. It is also about not to minimize the physical temple, but it's also mainly about the, the people of God. So God's making a promise here about the ultimate seed that will come from David. And he says, I'll be to him a father and he'll be to me a son. When he commits iniquities for Solomon, not Jesus, I will discipline him. Good morning, Leandra. Oh, you messaged me. I will be sure to get to that. I promise. I will look at that. <laughs> I haven't looked at my messages. Um, and the Lord says, I will be to him a father. He'll be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all the vision Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan receives a vision from the Lord, relays it to, to David, and David, never received a vision or a word from God to build a house. It started with an initial innate desire and actually this almost like frustration David has or I don't know if it's a frustration, but it's, hey, there's a problem. This is not right. God doesn't have a house to dwell in. Here I am, the king of Israel. I have a great house. That's not fair. We need to build a house for God. 
Nathan says, go do it. And God goes, actually, that's for his son. Solomon's going to do that. Solomon's going to build the house. So David has an idea, and that's fine. It's not a wrong idea. It's just the wrong time and the wrong person and the wrong way. So David has a vision of the temple, essentially. Not like from God, but like he has a desire to build a certain kind of house for, for God to dwell in. He's not going to see that happen in his lifetime. Now, he was the one who initiated it. He was the one who had that initial desire. God's going to answer that through Solomon. So guess what David doesn't get to see in his lifetime? What he knew was going to happen, what he believed for, and what God promised would happen. That his son would build a house. The house that David believed he would play a role in building ends up being just for Solomon to build. David would make preparation and provision and make sure there's peace in the land so Solomon could do that. But he wouldn't actually see, uh, you might say his dream come true, to build a house for the Lord. And he wouldn't see that happen through Solomon. And so just like Joseph, just like Jacob, just like Isaac, just like Abraham and Sarah and Noah and Enoch and every other biblical character you can think of, there's this waiting for nothing, it seems. Like, wow, I spent my whole life waiting for something I never saw. Well, hold on, hold on. God knows when things need to happen, who needs to be there along certain parts of the process, right? And who is actually going to play the specific roles that he knows they're needing to play. The question becomes, now we get into the practical application. There are obviously lots of examples of people who waited on God, believed for what he promised, and did not see it because it wasn't the right time, at least not in their lifetime. They would see it after their life, or it would happen after they were gone, right? So the question becomes whether or not what I'm waiting for is going to happen. And we're not talking about the promises of God as if well, we're not sure God might change his mind. We're talking about the things that we are believing for in this life that God has not explicitly spoken to or given us reason to believe, or he hasn't promised he would do this directly for us. Now you think of all the different things, relationally, financially, directionally, you want clarity, where to live, what to do at the school, all these different things we're waiting for God to do. Do I start a ministry online? Do I even play, do I start serving in the local church? I have a vision for what God is, I just have a vision to like serve God, is that gonna happen? So these kinds of things, right? What do we need to do regardless of when something comes or if it's coming at all? Like if I'm waiting for something and it's not going to happen, or if I'm waiting for something and it's going to happen when God wants it to in this life, regardless of if, the question becomes, what do I do? First things first. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Okay. We're going to back it up, and here's, I'm going to give you just four very simple, practical applications, because you now have a category. Some of you did not have this category before this message. You assumed everything I'm believing for, or everything God has promised, is going to happen in my lifetime. And now you actually know, oh, there's actually four different categories. What I'm waiting for falls can fall under, potentially. What I'm waiting for can happen. It can be a yes. It can be a not yet, like it's not going to happen as when you think, or maybe it's a no, it's not going to happen at all, or, okay, it's going to happen beyond my life and I won't even see it. And here's the first thing you need to know as you're waiting on God, whether you know it's going to happen or when, or, or even if God's validated that, 
you need to choose to see what God has certainly promised in Scripture. Or I'll say it like this, choose to focus on what God has certainly promised in Scripture. We spend, there's almost like, okay, if you think about of, of, of our hopes, like a resource, um, our, our hope is a limited resource, you might say. I only have so much hope to invest into something. Um, I only have so much fill in the blank to dedicate towards something. I'm, I'm fallible. I'm not infinite. I'm finite. Um, I'm not an infinite source. I'm a not infinite source. Because of that, a lot of Christians spend their limited resource of hope directed toward things that God hasn't explicitly promised or guaranteed are going to happen. And so what Christians do, and, and I've done this, I still struggle with this, man, is we spend so much of our limited resource waiting for things God has not guaranteed are going to happen. And then all the things he guaranteed will happen and promise and for sure are coming. We don't spend our hopes in any of, in the direction of those things. And so Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 says, these all died in faith. Watch all the different patriarchs and biblical characters of the Old Testament, not having received the things promised. Bummer, or maybe not. Maybe an example. Maybe that's best. Maybe that's most beneficial to their lives, is that they don't receive the things promised yet in their, in their entirety. But instead, here's what they do. Even though they, they didn't receive the full scope of God's promise in their lifetime, here's what they did. Having seen them, they greeted them or welcomed them, anticipated them from afar, right? And they acknowledged this. They were strangers and exiles on the earth. So I, I encourage you to write this down. Here's, here's a sub point that I want you to really meditate on. Take this, sit on it, write this down. What you might not see shouldn't distract you from what God promised you will see. Because again, a lot of believers, they spend their whole life waiting for what they might not even see at all. The things God hasn't promised regarding their emotional state and addiction and, and financial condition and where they're going to live and how, who's going to be a part of the family and how long they'll be alive and if they'll be healed physically this side of heaven and when that'll happen. They spend their whole life and their limited resource of hope all spent on what they might not even see. And then that distracts them from what God promised they will see. And so they walk around very discouraged, just Eeyore, just walking Christian Eeyores who don't see life the way God has called us to because they're constantly having their expectations like disappointed and God's not meeting their expectations, right? When God never actually told them to have those expectations. So here's another way to say it. Focus on what you know is coming instead of obsessing over what you don't, right? I, I should, as a believer, choose, I'm gonna focus on what I know is coming, instead of obsessing over what I don't know is coming, right? Otherwise, those things you might not see rob you of the limited resource of hope you have when you could have spent that on in the direction of what God promised you will. Right, so I'll, I'll say it again for those who, who are nerds like me and you love the notes. What you might not see should not distract you from what God promised you will see. Okay? You and I choose what we focus on. 
we decide to see certain things. We decide uh, what we're going to believe for and expect. That's why Colossians talks about set your mind on things above where Christ is. We choose where we're going to fix our mind and our eyes and our spiritual eyes. So um, think about all the things God has promised in Scripture. Like there's no stopping those promises from happening. They're absolutely going to happen. Satan can't stop it. The kingdom of darkness can't stop it. Every human being in rebellion to God can't stop it. Think about those promises. Which of those promises have you lost sight of and you've just, you're distracted from them because you've been focusing on things that might not even happen? I, like as a believer, because I, I just don't like being disappointed, frankly, like I'm not someone who likes having my expectations let down. I would rather spend my whole life focusing on all the things God said are going to happen instead of just looking at the things in my life that he hasn't guaranteed or he's going to do or, or, or make happen. Because then what you do is you set yourself up for success so that when those other things don't happen that God never said would, he never guaranteed they would. When they don't, you're like, that's okay. Because my attention and my devotion is directed toward the promises of God, not the ideas of my own mind. Number two, when you look at verse 13, it's, it's these people who didn't see what they were waiting for their whole lives. They acknowledged what? That they were strangers. You ever been to a foreign culture before? You ever been to another land? It feels like another world. <laughs> I lived in Cambodia for three months. Different world, different culture, different way of seeing the world and doing things. Just, I felt like a stranger. It's pretty clear. The way people look at you as you're just walking into the market, it's like everyone's an NPC and they're just staring at you, waiting for you to initiate the mission. That's what it felt like. Everyone's eyes are on me because it couldn't be more clear that I don't belong there. These people who lived in faith, waiting on God, here's number two, requires that you and I acknowledge you don't belong here. That should, that should help lift the pressure and help guard you against disappointment and help keep your expectations on the right things because we start to have the wrong expectations of God when we settle into this life. So don't settle into a place you don't even belong. Don't cling to what's fading. Don't hold on to things that are going to, you know, fall out of your hands any minute anyway. Why would I hang, hang on to something my whole life that's just slowly fading away? I, as I, I'm sure most of you, would, would rather cling to what I know is going to last and build my life on the rock instead of build my life on the sand. And that's not even just in an, in an eternal soul level way, but in just an, I don't want to spend my expectations and my hopes on temporary things that are fading. Acknowledge this, you and I don't belong here. It's gonna help you a lot when it comes to waiting on God because you realize I'm entitled to nothing. I deserve, 
Like my flesh wants to convince me that I deserve all the dreams and anticipations of my heart. My flesh wants to convince me that I deserve all the dreams and desires of my heart. You don't. We're entitled to nothing. <laughs> We're entitled to nothing. But you forget that when you settle into this life as if this is ultimate. It's not. This is a strange world. You're supposed to look around at the culture and the world and those in power and everything that's common and normal and go, this is weird. Yeah, because you belong to an eternal kingdom. You belong to a spiritual supernatural kingdom that transcends this world. It doesn't mean there's no crossover. It doesn't mean there's no uh, connection whatsoever. What I'm saying is my citizenship is not here. So I should feel like a stranger. I should feel like an exile because I don't belong here. And I, I promise, when you, when you wake up every day going, another day in a foreign land, it's gonna help you have the right expectations of God. Because you're not gonna have all, you're not gonna be waiting on the things that have to do only with this temporary life. You're gonna re like daily remind yourself, if you need to, when you, whatever alarm wakes you up in the morning, label that, I don't belong here. So that when you go and turn off the alarm, it says, I don't belong here. And you're like, that's right. So let's get to work in anticipation of the world I truly belong to because it's coming. That's what allowed these people to have the faith they did. That's what allowed the people, the foundation of their hopes and waiting on God and patience is, is this premise. I don't belong here. I belong where my father is. Where my father is, that's where I belong. And heaven is his throne the earth is his footstool. Number three. And then we have one more and we're done. People who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland, right? They're not settling into this life. They're not okay with the way things are. They're not absolutely, you know, okay with the way the world is. They're seeking a homeland. Which assumes this is not it. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. The whole main point of Hebrews is keep going, don't go back. Keep going forward, don't go back. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Why is God not ashamed to be to be the God of those who are expecting a heavenly country because he's prepared for them the very city they're expecting. In other words, their expectations have been shaped by the promises of God. Their anticipation has been shaped by the word of God. You have to ask yourself, is that true of you? Does the word of God itself shape and form your expectations of God? Does the word of God shape and form your dreams and the things you're desiring of God to do in your life? If not, if not, I, I would hesitate to attach God to something that I'm not even sure finds its basis in scripture. So number three, seek first the eternal kingdom of God. Seek first the eternal kingdom of God. I know this is so basic. So basic, so basic, so basic. Move on to, uh, you know, more mature doctrines. Move on to the deeper things. Move on to the more advanced teachings. This is advanced, man. Seek first the kingdom. If you've perfected that, sweet. Like, just go to heaven already. Because <laughs> we 
are all learning how to seek first the kingdom better every day. And if you've perfected that and you do it in a way where there's no way to improve it, like that's great. You can move on. For those of us normal believers who are still learning what it means to seek first the kingdom and how to do it better, this is how to do it. They desired a better country. I would encourage some of you, this just came to me, list out all the expectations of God in your life. What do you desire of Him to do? What are you dreaming of God to do? What are you waiting on Him to do? List out all that stuff. And then when you're done, go, hmm, is, is the majority of my expectations rooted in this temporary life? Do they have more to do about this temporary world? Or do they have more to do with the heavenly country that's coming? With the heavenly city of Jerusalem? With the new kingdom? In other words, are the majority of your expectations and desires uh, centered around this world or the next? It will help you realize whether or not you're truly waiting on God the way he calls us to. Matthew 6.33, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, it's not this ethereal idea that you can't even concretely define. It's not this, it's just an idea, it's lofty and everyone can define it however they want. It's very clear. The word of God, the people of God, the ways of God, the character of God, if I didn't raise it, the promises of God, right? The righteousness of God. It's actually very concrete. I can dedicate myself to going after those things that glorify God most. I can build my life on the rock of his word, being Jesus himself. Seek first the actual eternal kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. You know, I'm taking Matthew 6.33, okay? Some of you are super stressed out and anxious and worried and, and frankly afraid that God won't do what you're expecting Him to. And there's an anxiety around your expectations. There's a fear in you. Like, I'm just terrified God won't do what I want. And you, you're holding too tightly. You're holding way too tightly to your expectations of God rather than to God Himself. And you have this death grip on your dreams and your ambitions and what you're waiting for God to do. There's a death grip you have. And I'm trying to help you loosen that so you can enjoy life. You can't enjoy life when you're terrified of letting go of something that you're not even sure you have that is, at, that is real. <laughs> seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, to seek first the kingdom means, hey, I admit I'm not righteous on my own. I'm not. I have no righteousness. There's no good in me to like earn my way into heaven. I don't meet the law of God and his standard of perfection. I am not righteous on my own. So to seek the kingdom firstly requires me to admit I'm not righteous. I need God to make me righteous. So I look to Jesus to do that. So seek first the kingdom, his righteousness. Now watch, all these things will be added to you. Not all the things you're afraid God won't give you. Not all the expectations you have of God, not all the dreams and ambitions of your heart and all the things you're waiting for God to accomplish, all the things God knows you need. And if that does not include some of the things you're waiting for, are you okay with that? Like if you dedicate yourself, some of you only dedicate yourself to the kingdom because you assume everything I desire and dream of and expect of God to do, he'll do as long as I just seek his kingdom. So you're only seeking the kingdom of God for selfish reasons. You're like, well, God promised he'll do all the stuff that I want him to 
All I had to do is seek his kingdom, I'll do that. You don't seek the kingdom for his glory or because you love him. You seek it for all the self-benefits involved. Now the problem is, if God doesn't do what you want, you stop seeking his kingdom because you had this expectation and this wrong idea that if I just dedicate myself to God and his ways and his kingdom, he'll do anything I want. And when he doesn't, you jump shit. And you give up and you think God's the problem. What if your expectations are the issue? What if you're, the things you're believing God to do and the, the wants you have of God are actually the issue? Because they're not even founded in scripture. And you know, part of the way to determine whether something is of God or not is, I'm not saying this is the only filter, but it's a helpful one, is to go, hey, if God took this from me, or if he didn't do this, would I still serve and love him to the degree I do now? Would I be okay? Would I be content? If the answer is no, maybe what you're wanting God to do isn't even good for you to begin with. Because it would have such a grip of your heart that you couldn't enjoy God in the process. All these things will be added to you. All these things right here, it's not anything I want or anything I decide God is gonna do or any dream of my heart where I just attach God's name to it. It's all the things God knows is good and best to your sanctification, for his glory, for your relationships with people. It's all those things that are best for you. You and I don't always want what's best for us. We don't always have the right expectations of God and we're like, God, do this. And he's like, if I did, you would wish I didn't. If I gave you that, you'd ask me to take it away two weeks after. And so rather than go through that whole painful process, let me just shortcut it and let you know that what you want isn't good for you. What you want won't be a blessing, it'll be a snare. What you want is actually gonna rob you of time with me. So when we say seek first the kingdom, what I'm admitting is my home is with God. Not in heaven, but his kingdom. Because it's not, we're going to heaven. It's no, God's coming down to us. He's gonna reformat the whole earth. New creation is gonna invade. Heavenly Jerusalem will descend. Christ will reign. He's coming to us a second time. <laughs> and he's coming to stay. So it's not just about, I just wanna to go to heaven. It's about the, the new creation that is slowly invading this old world through his people and eventually, ultimately through Christ. That's, that invasion of God's kingdom coming here is what I ultimately long for because that's where my home is. My home is where God is. And you're like, well, God is in heaven now. Not for long. Heaven and earth will unite in new creation and there will be this heavenly earth. It's gonna be beautiful. <laughs> and I don't think we truly understand. I have no, if you ask me to draw it up, I'd fail. I'd fail drawing that. You don't want me to draw things. My son has, is a better artist than me. He's five, I'm 30. Seek first the kingdom. Dedicate yourself, devote yourself. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. Do you understand that? Like waiting on God is not this ethereal idea that you can't really, again, concretely define. Well, if we can't define it, we can define it however we want, right? No, you can't. You don't get to do that. God defines it like this. Devote yourself. Let your loyalty be with him and what he wants for your life. Not what you think is best, what he knows is best. And if he does something that is different than what you were expecting or waiting for or believing, you're okay with it because you say he knows better. Seek first the kingdom. You don't belong here. Your true home has not yet come. And God will make that happen. But the location right now of your body, well, we're seated with Jesus in heavenly places. Stop, stop it. You know what I mean? 
where you are right now in the world is not where you truly belong. I'm going to skip down to verse 35. And there's five verses that I almost wasn't going to share because frankly, they, this is not what we want to hear. I'll say it like that. When you're waiting on God, number one, choose to see or focus on what he has absolutely promised. Not the maybes of life, not the uncertainties, not the possibly, the absolute guaranteed truth. Number two, acknowledge you don't belong here. Later, Ken. Or no, that's not Ken. That's Rocky Chan. Later, Christian. Thanks for coming, buddy. Acknowledge you don't belong here. Number three, seek first the kingdom. And we'll, we'll explore these ideas a little more in depth as time goes on in this series. And number four, expect adversity and hardship. Now, I didn't want to put this in here, but the same chapter that has the hall of faith tells you the difficulty, persecution, and adversity they faced. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And we're like, yay! Well, that assumes they died first. And there was some grieving. There was some mourning. There was some giving up. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Now again, same chapter as, look at their faith. Look how they waited. Look at how they stood the test. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Now I'm not saying everyone's going to be tortured. I'm just saying the reality of our persecution is we don't necessarily know what that's going to look like. They might rise again to a better life. That's why they you know, refused to accept release. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, not stoned. I always have to clarify because people make those jokes, actually stoned, you know, hit with rocks over and over until you die. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world wasn't worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, after that description, you don't think it can get any more depressing. <laughs> and all these, even though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. Since God provided something better for us, what's the better? What's the better? The better is, if you scroll up, the better country, the better land, the better city, our real home, the heavenly home, where God is, the heavenly Jerusalem. <sighs> that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, it simply wasn't the right time in human history to bring the completion of all the promises and manifest those fully. Instead, these brothers and sisters of ours who experienced these things they spent their whole life waiting for something that didn't fully happen. So expect adversity from your flesh. John 16, In this world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In Christ we have peace. Romans 8, 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. All these passages that we could bring up on persecution and adversity and difficulty. It's going to be hard. Like, you need to expect that. You need to expect that. Because when we, hear, we talk about waiting on God and we're like, ah, yes, it's only going to be difficult in this way. Well, hold on. 
Part of expecting adversity and hardship is admitting, I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know to what degree I'll be persecuted. I don't know what, to what degree I'll be disappointed. I don't know in what ways I'll have my expectations you know, let down. I don't know in what ways I'll, be, I'll experience pain that God is working out for, my glory, for His glory and my sanctification. We don't know. We want to know. God, just show me all the different things so I can expect it that day. The general principle and wisdom that you need to know is expect adversity and hardship as you're waiting on God. Not because only you're waiting on God, right? Not when you're not waiting on God, while you're waiting, when you're doing the right thing. Because when people wait on God and they go, yes, he's worth it, and then life gets hard, they go, mm, he was worth it, bye God, and they walk away. What happened? Well, when they signed up to follow Jesus, the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist told them, hey, put your hand up. Christ wants to make your life better. I want a better life. Let's go. What they don't say is, hey, God's going to make your life better. A different way than you think, though. And you're kind of signing up for warfare. Now your flesh and the world and the powers of darkness are against you. So you should actually expect a little more difficulty and adversity. Otherwise, like Jessica says, you're like the shallow soil in the parable of the sower. And the seed is planted, and you're like, for a while I'm all about him. Then life gets hard because of my, temp my kind of involvement with God, and then I leave. Because adversity. So I'm, just, I'm setting you up with the right expectations. And I'm saying, hey, I want you to understand when you wait on the Lord, the pressure might get turned up. The difficulty might go through the roof. You might f come under a burden that you don't think you can handle. People might start leaving you. Life might start getting harder because you're waiting. Not because you're doing something wrong, but because you're waiting on God and he's teaching you through that process what it really looks like to follow him, to know him, to wait on him expect adversity. I'm not going to tell you to expect rainbows and butterflies and to fart cotton candy every day of every year. The point is when you follow Jesus and you wait on him and you dedicate yourself to a season of fasting or a season of prayer, intense prayer, and just I'm dedicating myself to God, expect adversity. Waiting on God is not like waiting in a train station for your train to come. When's the last time you rode a train, by the way? Let me know in the, in the comments if you've ridden a train recently. I've never ridden a train. But it's not like waiting for the train to come. It's like intense. It's warfare. And it's not always fun. But it's rewarding. That's the whole point of Hebrews 11. Is the reward didn't come in fullness while they were alive this side of heaven. In fact, the promise of God and the rewards that they really longed for came after or are still coming and have yet to come. So is this waiting for nothing? No, this is not waiting for nothing. When you are waiting for what God promised, you're not waiting for nothing. You might be waiting for something you won't see in fullness in this life, but some of you are waiting for nothing because you're waiting for things. Um, that God never said are gonna happen or he's gonna do. And so we might need a, a sub-series on discerning the will of God, to be honest. We might need, because some of you are going, oh shoot, you're telling me that what I've been writing down on my dream board and telling all my friends God's gonna do in faith and, 
and you know making all the sacrifices preparing for it you, you're saying it might not happen because I might have the wrong expectations of God sure faith is not just deciding God's gonna do something and saying now God do it <laughs> faith is God you said you promised you clarified you confirmed so I am responding and I'm waiting on you and sometimes you are waiting for something that you will not see this side of heaven. Are you okay with that? That's the question. If you guys didn't know, this is Above Reproach Ministry. Go to abovereproachministry.com uh, to check out all the free resources we have. Free Bible study courses, free Bible study devotionals you can read throughout the week, free Bible study worksheets you can use when you're studying the Bible yourself, um, free Bible study workshops. We have a free online church. Look at that. Um, and you can join our online community. Come and join. Come hang out with us. Come fellowship and grow in your faith. Um, I have a book. It's called Fruitful, The Essential Keys to Living the Most Abundant, Satisfying Life, This Side of Heaven. Um, you can get your copy on Amazon or on my website. You can pick up some merch. I got some pretty dope merch. I'm designing some for the future to release. So um, you can get a sweatshirt, shirt, some, some digital products, some mugs. Uh, that helps resource this content because all of this is completely free to everyone around the world. Um, all of it. And so if you want to you know, support what God is doing here and get behind this and you believe in our mission to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves and to help move people towards Jesus, if you want to be a part of that, you can go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. Okay? And you can mail a check to P.O. Box 338, Green Cove Springs. Make it out to Jason Camacho. It's my name. You can donate through debit or credit card. You can be a monthly supporter on Patreon and get exclusive access to certain benefits. You can give through PayPal one time, Cash App one time, Venmo one time. There, I've every way you possibly could give, you can. And that makes all this content possible, keeps the community going. There's leaders in place, we have structure. There are people that serve and you give their time and sacrifice and we wanna be able to to resource uh, what God is doing and keep them going. So, um, man, I hope this message blessed you. This is, again, Wait on the Lord Part 3. Part 4 will come out in a couple days, and we'll talk some more about what it looks like to wait on God. All right? You guys keep moving towards Jesus, and I'll see you guys later. Bye, guys.